Whoever governs Singapore must have that iron in him or give it up. This is not a game of cards. This is your life and mine. I've spent a whole lifetime building this. And as long as I'm in charge, nobody is going to knock it down. Ahoy, and welcome to the Sunken Treasures podcast. This is an exploratory adventure where five friends from across the globe seek to find hidden gems lost to the tides of time. From cinema and literature to philosophy and economics, we are a small yet mighty armada of unique expertise, and together, we attempt to map out meaning in our world today. The captains of this adventure are Daniel Knickerbocker, Alejandro Chavez, Donovan Roberts, Vikyat Mutiala, and me, Kat Lee. Keep in mind, this is an interactive podcast. We recommend checking out the episode's treasure beforehand for a much richer experience. You can find links in the description of the episode. So, are you ready to sift through the sands for the sunken treasures? Welcome back, everyone. I'm excited about this week's episode. We'll be exploring One Man's View of the World, a book from 2013 by Lee Kuan Yew. This is a really exciting book for anyone who's not familiar. Lee Kuan Yew was a pivotal, a, just an enigmatic person and, and politician, statesman, um, in leading Singapore into its independence in 19, I believe it was 1965. Uh, thank you for that. Um, oh, I, I apologize. I got that confused. I believe he was a co-founder of the People's Action Party in 1954, which was another big part of what made him so famous and, you know, what made Singapore yeah. such a pivotal, you know, for such a small country it holds great power in that region. So who brought us this treasure than no other than our man from the East, Vicky Mutiela. <laughs> Would you like to give us more of a summary about what we're exploring today? Yes. Hello, everyone. I am uh, the in-house Indian and in-house uh, fake Singaporean <laughs> because I spent four years in Singapore and, uh, you know, I've been obsessed with the idea of Singapore and very interested in Lee Kuan Yew. So we will talk about that in a moment. But first, the summary. One Man's View of the World is a book that came out in 2013. This was towards the end of Lee Kuan Yew's life. He was in his late 80s when the interviews for this book, book were happening. And he passed away in 2015. So it was very near the end of his life that this book came out. So this meant that he already uh, had decades of political experience on operating on a world stage. And he, he had written books before, but he wanted to write one book talking about what he thinks the world would be moving towards over the next couple of decades. So all these, uh, so the context of this has to be understood from the point of this was spoken in 2013, thinking about 20 years ahead. And he talks about it, uh, the book is split by country and he talks about almost the personality of each country, a bit of the history of each country and how a mix of the personality of the country and the history of the country will create a certain future, which he predicts. And we can talk later about 
which of those have in fact come true and which have you know been uh, big misses so he talks he starts by talking about china he starts by making the very strong point that china has increasing power now and it is soon going to demand a seat at the table as an equal he talks about how for 5000 years of chinese history the chinese have always believed because of mongol whether it is mongol hordes attacking them or internal conflicts chinese have always been strong in the belief that china prospers when the center is strong and their history has indicated as much to them so he talks about how democracy the american way might not uh, arrive in china and he also makes the assumption that probably the chinese don't even want it that exact way because the way china is set up and the way their history has taught them they they believe in a strong center then he moves on to the united states he talks about united states and the troubles it was going through at the time he talks about its decreasing influence in africa and he talks about how america's reputation has suffered badly because of both the financial crisis which was only 5 years prior to the time of these uh, interviews in 2008 and he talks about the messy occupations of iraq and afghanistan which also damaged america's reputation he goes on to say that america still has a huge advantage in innovation over china because though china can produce a lot of things anything many things that are new and world changing and at the time it was iPhones and the other things uh, iPhones and social media and, and other stuff and he says these things come out of america and he talks about how america also has the added advantage that talented people flock to america and and that will always work in america's favor he moves on to talk about europe he talks about he very clearly at the very start of the essay about europe says there cannot be monetary integration without fiscal integration basically he is talking about all of them using the same currency without having the same tax plan so you are not following the same tax code you are not following the same fiscal policy about how you spend that tax but you want to have the same currency he he says that this causes problems and he makes a very bold claim at the time that euro in its current form is not going to sustain he moves on to talk about japan he talk about how, uh, he talks about how japanese are uh, a very efficient society but he talks about how moving away from mediocrity is very hard for them because they are suffering with an aging population they are not repopulating at the necessary pace and this means that you have to bring in immigrants but that is where they are facing a double edged problem because japan does not integrate that well with with immigrants that do not belong to a japanese lineage lee kuan yew says if it were up to me i would probably try to integrate with vietnamese and chinese who are probably closer ethnicity wise but even that has been a trouble for japan because there are a lot of koreans and chinese that have lived for like a couple generations in japan but still are very much considered out, uh, outsiders even if they are citizens and have lived for a long long time so this is going to be a problem because neither is japan repopulating or uh, nor is it uh, accepting immigrants so japan's slide to mediocrity is almost a surety and he talks about uh, korea specifically about north korea and he makes a very clear claim that it's a grand hoax and one that has been successful for the north korean dictatorship and they are not likely to move away from it 
but not much is going to change because China needs the North Korean buffer so that American armies don't get too close to the Chinese border. He talks about India. He talks about how it is too big and diverse to unite under a single motive. It, he talks about how it is a place that has been put together in this way by colonial rulers, but it used to be many kingdoms before that. And he talks about how it is plagued by the grip of caste and how people are not able to break that social norm and the problems of their social class to, to enable a meritocratic ascent to, to a better life. He talks about, uh, then he goes on to talk about Southeast Asian countries. He talks about Malaysia, Indonesia, Thailand and Vietnam, Vietnam and Myanmar. Then he moves on. He talks about the Middle East. He talks about how, though there is a lot of talk about change, a permanent solution is not in the horizon. Then he talks about Singapore. He talks about the political setup. He talks about how, though it's an almost one-party system, they have been able to deliver results. He talks about how they will, they will at some point eventually lose power, but about how Singaporeans have to keep in mind that a two-party system for a place like Singapore might not work out because you need people who have power over a long period of time to create definitive change because of Singapore's volatile state. He talks about Singapore facing the same problem as Japan with an aging population, which will, which is not as bad as Japan, but it will be in the next 10, 20 years. Then he goes on to talk about, talk in detail about the global economy. He goes on to talk about energy and climate change. He makes both cases that there is an overwhelming consensus about climate change being a real thing. And he says, but there are some who believe that this is just something that the earth is facing as part of a grand clock. This is just something that happens. And finally, the book closes with his interview with a German chancellor, during which they talk like old friends, but they end up talking about international affairs and uh, is Angela Merkel good enough and uh, things of that nature, which, <laughs> which we will discuss in the episode. So that is uh, admittedly a uh, long summary of uh, one man's view of the world. Thank you. Nice. Yeah. Thorough. A lot to unpack. Listeners, please note, this is a multi-part episode. They don't go necessarily go in order. You can pick and choose. This episode will be pertaining primarily to the China-American relations. But please, if you have not read One Man's View of the World by Lee Kuan Yew, it is a knockout. So please enjoy. I don't even know where to start. Like I was just looking up some fun facts about Singapore and did you know Rhode Island is four times bigger, nearly, I think it's like 3.8 <laughs> times bigger than Singapore. And yet Singapore has a population of nearly 6 million people. Oh, that place. How many, yeah, how many live in Rhode Island? <sighs> well, I can tell uh, you like... more than 6 million. Probably. No, no. I mean like 4 six, million live in the Houston area. 6 million is small. What? <laughs> Six million is a small, small number. America is a population of 300 million. I mean, but look how big America, America is, though. <laughs> I know, so. but Six million is a small number for any U.S. area, I believe. But well, I don't know. You could check. Population it's one point to one, is it? 
Rhode Island? It says 11 lakhs, so it has yes, to be 1.1 million. Yes, 1.1 million residents. Oh, That's cool. Right. Yeah. Well, With four times the space, nearly. But anyways, yeah. I just And a sixth of the population. Yeah. Like, incredible. <laughs> no, Singapore Makes Texas look packed. Uh, I'm having, like, trauma flashbacks of being in public transport. <laughs> it's very convenient. But, like, during rush hour, it's, oh, it's... Back, it's like Mexico. Yeah, it's like India too. I mean, it's, it's far more it's far more comfortable. I mean, I have to be honest, but like, yeah, it's a lot of people. Well, please, Vikyat, I want to know. Like, we know that you you studied uh, you did your undergrad in economics from Singapore. Is that right? That is correct. Okay, so clearly you, you feel like Singapore is, hope, you know, a home away from home of sorts. And Oh, yes, very I guess, much, yeah. So I guess, did you read this while you were there or how did you come across this book and why do you think it's a sunken treasure? Uh, so this, this book I did not, re- I have been wanting to read for a long time, but I did not read this one. I, I, I used to read uh, in our college library, we used to have this, assorted uh, collections of Lee Kuan Yew's speeches, which he gives mm. when he comes uh, when he went to the United States, he's talking with like different world leaders. So I used to read a lot of those speeches and interviews and he's so, but this I only read recently. And I asked this Lee Kuan Yew fanatic friend of mine, he's Singaporean. I asked him if I had to like read, no, I was just asking him just generally. He's like, if I have to read one book, I've, I haven't read a book in a long time. If I have to read one book, what would it be? And this guy, I, I knew he was probably going to suggest something like Kuan Yew. And then he said, one man's view of the world. Like, it's probably his best. So, yeah, I ended up picking it up. But the reason I wanted to read this was two reasons. One is Lee Kuan Yew... This is, uh, and, and also, I, I've always been very inspired by what Lee Kuan Yew accomplished. And Lee Kuan Yew passed away in 2015. So I went to college there in 20, end of 2014. So when he passed away, I was in Singapore. And then, like, we went to see, like, the coffin and all of that. And oh, wow. uh, it was, like, a huge thing. So there were many documentaries talking about him. And, and then I realized the impact this man had created was, was huge. So just to be just to think someone in our generation and someone even even after he had passed away like to be like that close and to feel the power of it that you know as one person you can be so clear-cut and so consistent with your views for such a long time and create such lasting change was something i was always impressed by and his clarity of speech and about how no bullshit his points are i mean what he is saying might have political subtext and, you know, motivations and all of that. But there is, like, he's very clear about what he's saying. He will say it and he's very clear about that. And that is something I've always appreciated. That is one. And another, I thought it would be an interesting discussion to have to talk about world politics with the kind of broader context that is necessary for world politics. Because often we, we because the common scale is the liberal conservative American spectrum, we always fall back to it without realizing that some people don't even want to exist on that spectrum. For some, Mm. all of them are conservative. Like they don't want to have this liberal conservative discussion. Like they're all conservative and their problems are different. Their scale is different. And so I thought this, and and I thought Lee Kuan Yew's uh, context might be very valuable 
in that sort of context setting upon which we can build a conversation. So those are the two reasons. I haven't, like, I've never taken a course in anything global. Like, that's not true. I took, like, anthropology classes, but that's not the same as, like, politics where you're looking at economies and and I haven't actually like really tuned into any consistent source of news for like 10 years to be completely honest and this book was what I appreciated about it was it was sort of like everything I was longing for Mm. (laughs) in like a like I don't know anything about China except sort of the weird like American bias you know both like just an awareness of China and now like Mandarin is popping up in lots of schools. And, and I thought it was interesting in the book, just as a side note that he used the word, like the Chinese language. I was like, but I didn't think that I didn't think there was a Chinese language. Is that, uh-huh. the, is Mandarin considered like the Chinese language? Cause so many more people speak Mandarin than Cantonese. Yeah. Yeah. So Mandarin is the main language, but uh, parts of uh, the, there are, there are dialects like Hokkien and Cantonese depending on where you come from, like a lot of Singaporeans might be from Southern China. So, but uh, some grandparents, like he talks about, might want to speak Hokkien, but he wants to make Mandarin the main thing because as he says, a singular language is needed to unify a country. So, yeah. So like, that was really interesting to me, like looking through, he just seems so diplomatic. Like Like he was holding everybody to the same standard he was calling everybody out on the same sort of yeah. weakness, strength. Um, and and like I thought, oh my gosh, like of course he was an exceptional leader if this is how he went about like his his whole you know way of gathering information was like sheerly from this, okay, let's evaluate where you've come from, where you're going, how things are like what is the base note of your of your population. And I also it was such an interesting thing in the middle of like very woke I don't have a more eloquent word for that but like woke America right to like have him be grateful for British occupation (laughs) um wow yeah was such a curious thing to be like oh the like evil white like colonizing you know there's a lot there um but also it just was so good for me as an American to, to have this be sort of my reintroduction to, to global affairs. And, and I thought he was so incredibly pragmatic and fair about how he described each place. Mm. Well said, Danielle. Yeah. I think it definitely like, yeah, that was very well put. Yeah. Um, just, yeah. Kind of demystified and kind of like shed light on these, stereotypes or just kind of these blanket understandings that we kind of carry as Americans. Like, of course we want to point our fingers and say like, Oh, China's bad. Uh, but really coming from this perspective, like he, I don't know. I think he was really able to navigate as such a complicated region and for such a small, you know, I don't want to call it insignificant, but like just on a, a geopolitical respect like he's caught himself in between like these massive global powers and yet was able to navigate the 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 landscape in a way that propelled Singapore forward in such a drastic way such a in a positive way too right like raising the standard of living and and one thing that you mentioned Vikyat was like language he really emphasized 
it stuck out to me because he made English the lingua franca because, of course, he wanted to emphasize trade and communications, knowing that Singapore would play this very intercultural part within negotiations, within, of course, like, you know, just commerce in general, but but also as a way to unify, right, this, like, sense of, like, civic nationality. He was really taking into account, you know, like, how can we both be the solid power, but also embrace the diversity of this multiracialism and and ethnic identities that were coming into Singapore at that time. Um, So, yeah, I don't know. I I wish there were more places like Singapore because it's such an interesting history and, you know, just an anomaly, really. Yeah, very impressive guy. Very impressive guy. Well, I can share my take on the book. Um, I I really think the same as all of you. Uh, It was a book... I mean, I entered it with no expectations, so that helped a lot, you know? I was like, okay, this is a book about somebody, some man's wor- view of the world. <laughs> um, and before before reading it, I watched a small video on YouTube about him. And everybody painted him as, you know, this very smart, wise, diplomatic human you know and like uh, hearing him speak for like three minutes i guess yeah it, it was just that he the video i saw he was already old very likely he was in the end of his life so for sure you know like you could see the i guess how simple the world seemed to him in not not that the world was simple to him but you know the simplicity of his thoughts in terms of like and the neutrality of it, right? Like he was not interested in saying, oh, you country X, you know, like you fucked up because of this and that and we're doing best here. It's like, you know, like this is what I think the world is going to go. Uh, this is what I think some countries are doing well. This is how I also, what I also think some countries are perhaps lacking on or they should pay attention, but I understand why they are not paying attention to it. Uh, he he in the book he didn't seem to take a side, right? Like they should be going towards this direction. He was more very analytical of like, well, this is a history. This is my understanding of the history of the country in a way, like the, what has happened uh, in the past few generations and where I think they are going and the reasons why they are going there, right? And perhaps why. Those directions, I understand why they seem, um, I guess, controversial or they don't seem as the right, or some countries see it as not the best way of ruling a country. But he, I didn't feel he took a specific stand on any of, you know, the political position of the countries he talked about. Mm. Um, yeah, so I found it very good. enlightening, you know, like I, I am very grateful he did not try to indoctrinate anyone and it was more of a book oh my god you know like this is what i think it was the title was very assertive you know one yeah it was like it's one man's view of the world (laughs) yeah Yeah, exactly so the title i love and in that like he sort of acknowledges like the limit of his perspective but also like clearly hit throughout his life he had had experiences that you know most of us don't have exactly you know with a cumulative um, you know, piece of that. But I also thought like whether it was Japan or Europe um, or, you know, the Middle East, 
He's like, this seems to be what's important to them. Mm. Therefore, this may be what happens. Um, and he wasn't sort of like, you know, like you said, like they're morons because they're not doing, right. you know, the thing that I think is important. Um, but sort of just indicating where he thought the limitations might come for different countries based on what they put priorities on. The whole thing was just so beautiful and really made me think like, you know, if, if, because I have school on my mind, like, what if we treated each child like this? What if we treated each like, you know, other country that we talk, like it's such a great sort of way to evaluate things that are not you. Yeah. One thing I found, I think maybe we're all kind of like hinting out, found really refreshing was like, he didn't really give value judgments, right? He didn't kind of what Alejandro was saying was just like, he didn't say it was like bad or good about these other governments he was kind of reflecting on. It was just very matter of fact, like it is what it is. Um, And a lot of it I really agree with too. And I think maybe that's something that's missing from our kind of public discourse is we just want to demonize or, you know, celebrate and like, this is the best or this is the worst instead of just saying like, well, this is what's happening. You know, just like kind of like flat reporting style that used to be prevalent and has, as we know, evolved into fear mongering and whatnot. But yeah, no, it was, and for this to come out in 2013. So I'm trying to think like, you know, we're still, we're coming out of like the, the housing crisis and the, and the economic recession. And, you know, I mean, I'm trying to think like how else this could have impacted others, maybe in the United States, but probably, you know, more likely in the East, such a, I don't know, even today, such a powerful book. I'm, I'm super happy. I did have to do like publish it. a lot of, I am too. I had to do a lot. Like when I first started reading, I was like, oh my God, I don't know who any of these Chinese leaders are. <laughs> so I like started like sketching out. Like I was like, well, when I talked to this guy, I was like, okay. Like also like checking my like ostrich head in the sand that sometimes happens that, you know, like my life is good enough. I don't actually need to learn about what's going on anywhere. Um, and so it was such a great, like I made like a flowchart of like the Chinese, like every time a new name would come up, I would be like, okay. And and then I was like, what's going on with it? Maybe like also curious, like what's going on with the Kim family? Like, do they have an, like a, a descendant? Like what's, you know, and so it was so great to also like get me back and the like clicking of, of thinking about things outside of my own sort of pond. Yeah. Cool think, yeah. Um, very smart, very confident. I would say he doesn't speak in an antagonistic fashion, but I can see he's a very confident guy. I think at one point he even defended some politicians of the opposing party in his government, like in his country. Like he's saying, no, yeah, don't say did. that. Don't don't do that. No, don't don't speak that. Like they're trying, you know, he was kind of, you know, and you don't see that much in politics. And I can see why he actually ended up turning around that country. He does have some views that I believe other politicians really need to hear. So, cool guy. We should ship some of the copies of the book, you know? <laughs> <our houses. laughs> um, I like how he talks about the United States because... 
this is a man who has been in politics in politics not lived in politics for like 60 years like right more than 60 years like i'm not rounding 50 something to a 60 i'm rounding 60 something back down to 60 like he's been in politics for more than 60 years and so he is able to talk about united states the same way he talks about vietnam and myanmar so usually whenever people talk about the united states it's in this extremely aspirational or downright servile kind of way or like completely oh us is like this like oh it's all capitalism it's all bad and i'm like neither of these views is keeping its emotions in check its motivations in check the people who are servile and all of that it 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 obviously they have like this very elevated idea of us which of course you can have but because this man has been in such a powerful position where he's been providing guidance to like he talks about how nixon came and asked him questions and noted stuff down and like because yeah. he's been in the guy is so dope like he's able to talk about all countries in like this <laughs> he's he's able to talk about all countries in this very cool headed calm fashion and i like people like margaret thatcher are like saying nice things about her i was like margaret thatcher says nice things <laughs> like <laughs> Uh, so it's just it's it's just so nice to see uh to see someone like that talk about world politics because not only do they know so much they are not some you know 23 year old journalism graduate that read like four articles in either the new york times or whatever is the other side's equivalent and then started you know spouting all this like this man actually has met with these leaders and has seen his country go from an ethnic conflict ridden sanitation problems ridden poverty ridden little island to the blazing metropolis that it is today so he has seen that and he all through this time he has had to navigate with all these heavy weights of uh, the global world uh, of, of 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 the globe right and and the thing is now they respect him but for him to wait till the point he earned his respect he had to be a very big man and be very clear and very strong with what his intentions are so he has dealt with all these leaders so like the way he approaches it and the way he puts it forward is like this is like so nice like for the first time someone is talking about all of the world and they're like breaking it down in this calm collected manner when when it is a matter of singaporean inter- intrinsic motivation he makes it clear He's like, yeah, we'd love for American ships to be there. Chinese ships, we let them be there, but China might get a little too aggressive. I mean, he does. He says assertive, but we know what he means. So, so he he makes his point, but it's he, he is able to look at all these different parts. And what I really like about him, and which with which we will enter talking about China, is. he talks about how a nation has a specific history and that history decides how people think right because whenever we whenever in the general discourse whenever we try to see what works we see what the powerful system is or the successful system is and then we take that system's ideologies and are like okay if the whole world did this whole world would shine 
but he talks about how there are certain even if that were true and understanding that every nation has a character dictated by its history and that is why that nation behaves the way it behaves it is a far more profound thinking to say china for 5000 years has wanted a strong center because it's been raided by hordes of mongols or like local conflict and all of that and it has only prospered when the center was strong is a much more profound thought than saying oh they are dumb that's why they were commie like it's not like if there is a broader reason as to why they want to centralize control so when something like communism comes along they're like okay the center knows what it's doing it might be flawed but to even start on the path of empathy and understanding it helps understand that there is a certain history and that history dictates a certain personality of the country and without understanding that if you shove the measure down its throat it is going to backfire so he talks about the idea of a strong center for china so that thought was very interesting what do you guys think about the whole china talk and uh, his views and I can agree more, right? Like especially as an American, like it just so frequently gets chalked up to oh, well China's bad because they're communist and, you know, they're going to whatever, like careful of China technology, like they're going to be spying on us, yada yada yada, like and sure yeah, maybe some of those things are true, but it's kind of what you just said, it's like it's so short-sighted. that really doesn't consider the historical context as to what made china what it is today and and honestly as i was reading this book i just call it disappointment or even like a little bit of shame of like in myself and my own you know curiosity of not doing this research myself and that not asking better questions of like you know really trying to understand china and you know it's it's today it's hard for me to see china as this like fractured kind of mongol ridden country right because it is so big and it, and it really does wield an enormous amount of power but you know it really wasn't that long ago that china was struggling to kind of maintain its borders and actually provide services to its people and really kind of have that unified identity um so i mean that Yeah, I mean it's really easy for Americans I think to just write off China as like the bad guy, right? Like and then it's yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's it's a complicated issue, right? I don't think we're the best of friends by any means, but I think there's a lot more di- dialogue meant to be had like and just, you know, genuine curiosity, not so much between our governments, but truly just between people. Yeah. The interesting thing is they can still be your bad guy but in analyzing <laughs> him you better analyze them correctly exactly like you right. can still you can still bomb them but don't like if if like that is you know if it's war and if they are bombing you and you're bombing them back i mean we're not doing war now so fine but like For whatever sure. is the current version of like economic sanctions or you know whatever is the globalist play right now it still helps to understand them on a deeper level than go with the outer bias even if they especially right. if they are enemy it helps understand them better so that you know the motivations and counter them effectively you don't even have to go hug them exactly. and be like oh i understand your pain it's like even if you are <laughs> countering them it helps to know the battlefield it helps to know why just 
trying to put your army in Afghanistan won't make it a democracy, right? So I couldn't agree more. Like it's, you know, some would argue that we're in a bipolar global landscape right now between America and China. And Lee Kuan Yew does a really great job of acknowledging, you know, and I say America, United States, I get hung up on that word sometimes, but the United States, you know, he accurately says, you know, it's, yeah, sure, it might still be on top, but very much troubled. And I would find a hard argument to counter that, right? Like, I think as time has gone on, the United States has become more fractured, right? We're almost like changing positions in a way as, as China is really becoming more unified and more and much more, you know, self-possessed in this identity. United States is kind of getting, you know, we have ideologies kind of across the board and, you know, is that a result of media and, you know, social media, of course, and, you know, information, disinformation, all these things that have really become quite the, the tools here in the past five, 10 years, but um, I don't know. I'm curious think, to hear other people's thoughts. Yeah. So I had long sort of held the observation. It was really interesting to sort of see his take on it, that the Chinese aren't so great at original creation, like whether it's technology or, or even music, right? Like you see them reproduce um, pieces and like masterfully, but I don't know a lot of like, than like Yo-Yo Ma, like a lot of people who like have authored pieces of music um, when you look at, at Chinese musicians. And that's like my bias, but they, you know, I was just like, like what makes them so incredible at like taking somebody else's idea and perfecting the execution of it. Um, but then really realizing sort of that the center being strong and the position being more important than the individual um you sort of get a window into and then that that is very much part of like their, their idea of national security that, that there is this piece that like my, the pixel that I am in this big picture is more important than like what I could produce, you know, as a solo. Um, and that was really, it sort of validated, you know, the, the very slighted observation that I had from my little tiny, you know, window that it seemed like they didn't do a lot of original creation. So I felt like that was really interesting that he commented on creativity being something that is not um, valued. And then also just, it was great to see it. I know this book is years old and so much has changed since its publication, but also just like acknowledging the fact that, you know, we think of, I think of China as an American that doesn't watch any type of media as having like, you know, there's these huge borders and nobody comes in, nobody goes out. And in fact, like it's, it's progressed significantly in its desire to, you know, trade and, and be more of a, an exchange party with the world instead of being sort of this, you know, and also like, they do have such a, a strong national identity that that's not going to compromise. They're not going to like become New York city. Um, and, and then the also big, just like, yeah. go, you know, go ahead, Kat. I was just going to say the kind of the big elephant in the room in between U S China relations is Taiwan, right? Like that is all that is continued to be a, the last, I don't know, 
poker piece on the table, right? Like, I think there's been a lot of strategic ambiguity between both parties as to how to move forward the best way. And I would like to think that both sides would not want to enter any kind of warfare. But of course, the United States is very reluctant to remove its presence away from Taiwan because of trade and economic purposes. Meanwhile, China, as Lee Kuan Yew, you know, accurately lays out, I forget which agreement it was back in the day when, I mean, it's, it, maybe you can help me out, uh, Vicky. I forget the actual agreement, but it was like between the U.S. And, and, and England, I believe, with China saying like, oh, okay, like, Taiwan. Oh, yeah, yeah, this uh, was Taiwan. the, yeah, yeah, this mm-hmm. was uh, a, a convention that, happened in Egypt where it was decided that Taiwan would be, would eventually returned. be made, returned to right China. After yeah, yeah. And of course I'm thinking like, yeah. why the fuck is like no representatives of Taiwan involved in this agreement, right? Like what did the people of Taiwan actually want? Um, and I mean, that's a lot of, I don't know, like information do we have access to? Or, I mean, I think we do have access to it, but how do we, how does anyone make a judgment on based on someone else's, you know, sovereignty for a country? Um, I don't want to skip ahead, but like also I had a a student at synthesis who um, I don't remember where her home was, but she was going to visit her grandma in Myanmar, I think. Um, And it was, she was like not going to be able to get service. It's like super off grid. Um, So I remember reading that like, the Burmese government like uses the national happiness quotient as like a a way that they like evaluate their country. And so I sort of had this like very romantic view of like that country being like one that really Hmm. values the happiness of its, its citizens. But when she got back, I asked how she was, she's like, it's the same as it is always is like people with, you know, machine guns walking through the street and the like sort of Chinese, um, you know, like spillover. And and it made me to your point about like, what do the citizens of Taiwan like, you know, and, and there's also the thing with like the Nepalese, right? And like the Dalai Lama being like having left in the 70s and that there is this sort of Chinese intolerance of, of you know, a deviating too much from the national agenda. And so it doesn't surprise me that and, and the U.S. have, you know, trying to be strategic with trade and we don't have necessarily the most polished history of consulting people before deciding that right. that we have interests in the region. Um, yeah, it, it is, it is very interesting to think about how they are like present in countries that they, they don't necessarily have. And we are too. Um, so I don't know. That was not a very eloquent thing, but it made me think of like how I had this like super romantic <laughs> idea of Burma. And then she came back and she was like, yeah, you know, it's the way it always is. Like there's no internet. There's people with machine guns. It was nice to see my grandma. <laughs> I was like, okay. <laughs> Daniel, I have a question though. Uh, yeah. The happiness one, the country that is praised for the happiness thing. It's Bhutan. It's, it's not it's Burma. Bhutan, right? Yeah. Yeah. No, you're right. Yeah. Um, so there I go, like demonstrating my just general ignorance. of I love it. It's an Asian it's, country. It's, it's, it's fine. <laughs> it's in a different no, continent. So you don't like have terrible. to know. We cannot know <laughs> everything. So, but yeah. I was going to say, the more the more I hear you guys talk, and and I think back to the book, um, I think a very interesting perspective that he, in my opinion, it dominated 
the the way he articulated his view of the world was um, the emphasis on countries' beliefs and traditions, right? Mm -hmm. Like, I guess he was very good at uh, reading between the lines and understanding deeply the reasons why X country moves in certain directions and observing that those decisions come from very specific beliefs, like specifically about the American chapter. Um, I think he oversimplified it. I'm, uh, you know, I think I'm not all pro America as he put it, the whole thing. I'm not also all against it. I think it's a great country. Um, but interestingly, he was talking about how, you know, uh, the whole conflict in Vietnam and in China was because Americans were trying to stop uh, communism, right? They were trying to prevent more countries from becoming communist. Uh, and that, you know, like in my opinion, it's like, well, is that enough? <laughs> is that enough, you know, excuse to go and and declare a war on a country? Like, for sure, America has been a bit more aggressive on his tactics than China, right? And I think that's something he acknowledges. Like, China has been very uh, peaceful and moving in the shadows a bit, right? Like, it's like, I'm not here trying. And that might be a very good strategy, like a good strategy um, to, you know, accomplish whatever purposes. But in all in all, if I were to reduce, uh, poorly reduce, I'm not going to say that it's the best reduction, <laughs> but if I were to poorly reduce a lot of what this book is about and like what is in, in between the lines, I think it's a great observation of how we as humans are so interested in prevailing, right? Like, And by prevailing, I mean our ideas. Like it's a very... I don't know, it's very clear to me reading this book that, like, why is China trying to be so powerful? Why is that the objective of a whole country and generations and people in power? And But I guess that's that's the human struggle, no? Like, that's the, that's the way history unfolds. It's a history of people trying to overthrow and see who's better than who. Well, I think it has to do uh, with security. Like, if Maybe. you don't have a strong footing, then you might be the guy that they come for. Or or it may be because you're a bully. Enter Donovan. That, yeah. <laughs> that, that, it, it's a, exactly. That, that's, no. that's an interesting yeah. Yeah. way of putting it. Like, to me, America has been that's, a bit more bullied yeah. than China. The, the Chinese are bullied against, among them, you know, with themselves. But America has been a bit more... Of a bully. So this is it. There, I think. Uh, just real quick, Donovan, and mm -hmm. then I want to hear. And I'm excited to hear what you have to say. I feel yeah. like America's like the, um, like douchey big brother that like, <laughs> like no, let me tell you what you should do. Right. Um, whereas I do feel like China, you know, has a very a much longer history. Oh yeah. Of having been. I don't, uh, the bully is an, an interesting word, but I can see that sort of, you know, the definition for me of a bully is like somebody who's so scared that they're aggressive. 
Um, oh, that I mean, it that's comes from a sense of insecurity and fear. Um, and then there's an overcompensation that happens, whether it's on a playground or like, you know, in a country. That sounds like the Iraqi invasion yeah. to me. <laughs> and, yeah, I agree. you know, like the United States like came in the came into power, came into wealth like pretty quickly in terms of the lifespan of any other country. And like, yeah, I think that it is a sense of fear of like, oh man, we, we got rich quick. I don't want to lose it. Um, we got, you know, all this power, like don't want to lose it. I think there is a sense of fear. And, you know, of course, security goes into that. Um, yeah, I don't know. I kind of identify with Donovan's bully statement. <laughs> I, I think the... Mm-hmm. Uh, just just one point on I think the the interesting thing that Lee Kuan Yew talks about in this is I mean I was joking about the the Iraq invasion I don't actually know enough to definitively say whether it was good or bad definitely taking out Saddam destabilized the region and messed a lot of things up but uh, I, I don't know the full picture so that was only a joke but the bully part I like what he talks about China just defending its interests and letting you do your thing, whatever it is. Like, even if you're North Korea, like, they're like, just, mm. yeah, fine. Just don't let American armies reach my borders. <laughs> you can do whatever you want. So it's a different self-satisfying sort of benefiting uh, motivation. It is, it is, I don't know if it is better. It's just, it's just very different. But yeah, we'll, we'll get back to that. I think Donovan had a point. Yes. Yeah, so... Um, he, he made it... He gave a few examples in his writing how Vietnam gave ExxonMobil some rights to drill in the South China Sea and the way that China was aggressive to get them to not drill there for whatever reason. It's not as if they have rights over that water. Permission was given by Vietnam. But they're such big bullies. And ExxonMobil said that they moved on because the American Navy was not there to assist them on their rights, to enforce the rights that they were given to drill there legally. He also gave another example about fishing in some Japanese war, some Japanese fishing situation where the Chinese also pushed around the Japanese. So the context Mm -hmm. is there are a few islands in Japan which are on territorial waters. So China claims ancient right to them, but now they're a part of Japan. So in either in that part or in the seas, there's a lot of, uh, what do you call when it is uh, China, Sino-Japanese conflict in those regions because, so he says that if there was a fishing boat which was caught by the Navy, this kind of thing happens all the time. Like even between India and Sri Lanka, there are always like Navy guys catching fishermen's boats and things like that. And that becomes a diplomatic issue. But in this case, since China is so big, he says, if the Japanese boat did something, the Japanese government can't really back them. And the Japanese fisherman boat or the trading vessel would have to give way to the Chinese Navy. So that is the context. Go on. Yeah. Right. So, so Lee Kuan. Lee Kuan Yu. L-K-Y. Lee Kuan Yu. <laughs> he yes. says that, so over the years, you, you see quite clearly that the Chinese are no pacifists, right? Now, that's a nice way of saying that they are somewhat aggressive. They're, them wanting to be the number one superpower in the world is not, in my opinion, due to any security concerns. They are 
way more than the American population. It, I mean, you're not going to enter China and take over China. That's not going to happen. There are no security concerns in China as far as I can see. So I think that them wanting to exert their influence on the world is mainly due to their feeling of supremacy that they are they just want to control it looks like to me they believe that it's their rightful place to be like rulers and they are determined to be number one in the world and surpass the united states um would you say it's like the competition would you say it's like the competition that drives it yeah it is the competition and i don't have a problem with competition I don't have a problem with competition as long as you can respect your competitors. And you, I mean, America does try to exert their influence on the world. You know, we call them the policemen of the world, which if they're doing that, I mean, it's kind of fair for China to actually, you know, try to exert some influence too. them just trying to stay in their small corner and produce things and be prosperous you know, maybe there, maybe it is okay then, since America is trying to be the policeman of the world, for them to kind of <laughs> exert some influence. So maybe it's maybe maybe I shouldn't be complaining. Maybe but, I don't know. But he, he, here's a pushback on that. You know, like, and I think the pushback is is more of like asking this question. Um, you know, the whole Russia Ukraine thing that's happening right now. What at least to me is more scary is that if for any reason that I hope it doesn't happen, Russia wins, and by winning, I don't mean, I mean, nobody wins in the war. Like, I guess it's more of like the recognition of winning, right? Like the world like and the papers, submits. the papers start to say Russia won. Like that's I, yep. that's what I mean by winning. Um, the problem is that that's going to set a precedent on other countries to be like, well, this is doable, right? Like, we could like it is doable to invade uh, other countries and nothing is gonna happen to you like there's not gonna be that much repression not repression uh, repression. Uh, repercussions sorry yeah thank you uh on you right because what's the world doing right now i mean you know like nobody is really going there and defending ukraine like it's not like okay mexico's going to send which is what we should troops. be doing also because exactly. if we started going I, it would actually get worse I, but but go on go on you're right you're right um, you know so i'm sorry which who should be doing what vika no no he was saying we're not going and stopping russia or anything but that is not something that we can directly just do because right. then if not we start simple. taking sides is how it builds up into like a, a block war. Yeah, war. that's how we start a war. Um, yeah, but I mean, tons of countries are already sending troops into Ukraine to help Ukraine fight. And I mean, America has tons sure, of troops sure. on the ground. But it's not official, I mean, right? It's not like... Right. It's whether, not it's official, not. whether it's official or not, America alone has given, what, how many billions? <laughs> I mean, no, no, they're, they're a part like, of the war. And they have, they have men on the yeah. ground fighting that war too. And I mean, yeah. Do, are there Americans fighting the war that was sent by the government? There are. It was on the news. They showed on the news when they arrested this young guy for exposing some information on the internet about the American war, which showed that um, the Ukrainians are suffering seven times the losses of the, of the Russians and that there were Americans on the ground, military advising or doing whatever it is. 
There are many there Americans are underground. There are troops underground there that are Americans, yes. That the was U.S. Revealed by, by, by a, they go a quickly from this young guy. and they go quietly um, in the beginning, but yeah, there's always... Yeah, yeah Alejo, what like, was your point, though? Yeah. The, the whole point was... Um, it was just a pushback on Donovan's point of like, I'm not sure we should think of like, well, since America does it, then China is allowed to. I'm not sure that should be the way politics should be looked at, you know, and I do think also China, I, I, I don't know anything about China, you know, like I'm completely ignorant. I'm not judging anyone, but at least basing on the book, right? Like, purely talking about the book. This whole ideology of the center being strong and them trying to become this superpower, if you write like to become the next uh, global power, if you may. I'm still, you know, I, 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 if I, I find it fascinating to try to understand where's the root of that drive to be number one. Well, and I think like historically it's never worked out very well when you start like, you know, whether it's the, um, you know, the USSR or um, the Roman empire, right. By the, when you start spreading out, like it, it never ends well to have like territories and the British empire, like you can't control. And, and even in China, they're having trouble with their, um, you know, according to the book, with their rural, um, urban sort of disconnect. Um, and, and so it does seem like, to your point, Alejo, like what is the drive to control more when, when that control actually like, I don't it's know. a disadvantage. Or it becomes a risk. It's, it's a yeah. huge, you know, I just like think of like how I have my one child and you hear about like families that have 10 kids. I was like, 10 kids? Like, let's Jesus. be real. Like nobody's parenting 10 kids. They're like <laughs> parenting each other and like the internet's parenting them. And like you lose, uh, yeah. you start yeah. to lose like more than two Stability. where you have like a hand on each child. <laughs> like then it goes like, who knows what happens. But one so, thing that um, came to mind, Lee Kuan Yew mentioned, I just real like he, I think... He was asked, like, you know, what news are you paying attention to? Of course, he's, you know, Southeast Asia, China, of course, America, Europe, no doubt. But he makes a point to say Latin America. I don't really care about it. Yeah, he doesn't really. Yeah, like, I know. Yeah, it doesn't, <laughs> doesn't really, yeah, yeah. He, I was going to mention that. He's like, I don't care. And, I don't care. It doesn't matter to Singapore. I don't care. I mean, one thing that I do find, you know, suspicious, <laughs> if not insidious about China is the influence that they're trying to garner in Latin America. They are absolutely trying that, you know, they're making these plays, you know, infrastructure and education. In they're, Africa, they're especially in, in Africa. Africa. In too, Africa, too, absolutely. Yeah. Very much um, in Africa. Infrastructure. Because, China? I mean, I think a lot yeah. of their China, space, China, yeah. A lot. Okay. A lot of their land is irritable or like you can't use it for agriculture. So that's why they're kind of like exploring Africa in a big way. But I mean, in Latin America too, I mean, they've made huge infrastructure projects for like ro roads and railways to kind of contribute to this like further expansion. But coming back to the, the question is like, why assert yourself into a seemingly more vulnerable position where you don't have control? But I guess if we had a, you know, a person from China that could speak on behalf, be like, 
well, you know what? Like the stronger our center is, the further out they can expand maybe, right? Like with that strong center control, you know, you know, and that just identity, they're, they're able to execute more effectively. Yeah, Donovan. I, mm-hmm. I think I'm, I'm disagreeing with myself just now, what I just said. <laughs> Okay. So I think maybe a part of it is security, why they're exerting themselves. Because the thing is, if America has this persuasive ability over, let's say, over the world, well, then they have the ability to cut off China from imports and exports, and they can punish the Chinese economy and manipulate them by telling their allies or other countries that they have control over to not do business with China and punish them in that way. So I think maybe it's due to security why China is trying to build these relationships with these foreign countries, especially in these significant regions, to ensure that they can't be cut off or punished by the United States, which, I mean, every time they have a problem with a country, Iran, Venezuela, Cuba, whoever it is, the the, the first thing that they do is sanctions, you know, financial thing they try to hit you in the pocket. And so maybe it's due to that security influence why China is exerting themselves. That would that would make sense. But but That's I something. also can commend I can also commend the way in which they go about doing it. They don't try to exert their influence by being violent in any way or threatening people. They go around building infrastructure. So like in Jamaica, we have politicians here who they don't hesitate to approve new Chinese highways or stuff like that. And the thing is, the, the things they build are quality. I can't, we, you can't complain about the quality of their work. They, whether it's a road or a bridge or whatever it is, they do good work. And so that, that way of investing in Africa and in these impoverished, impoverished countries to kind of build these relationships, I don't have a problem with that. So I, I take it back. Maybe they're not bullies, actually. The first question, because I didn't realize like, quite the impact in Jamaica, but do you, have you seen an influx of Chinese immigration? Immigrate Chinese run almost what? Let's say one <laughs> half of all the stores in Jamaica. They're everywhere. That's so much. Yeah. Everywhere. And the thing and is, I once guess... they move into your country, especially in the third world here, where we don't produce stuff, because we don't have a mm-hmm. you know a, a manufacturing industry in these smaller countries. When the Chinese come here, the price of their goods, I don't know if the maybe the Chinese government is giving them a deal. Maybe they get, I don't know what it is, but they undercut everything. You cannot have a business near to a Chinese business. They, they have what are, what are called wholesales, where right. they will sell things in bulk and stuff like that, and they price everything out. And so they, they'll spread pretty quickly in any country that they enter. That's yeah, a, one thing, though. That, yeah, yeah. Go on, go on. Fin, fin, no, no, finish your point. I, I'll mention that um, I support, just on the spot, I... I switch positions like this. So I now support China's expansion into the world. I don't mind it. They do do a lot of intellectual property theft. That is a lot. They have a lot of photos that show their military jets, their planes, their ships, and they put American planes and ships beside it. It's carbon copies. So they're literally apparently stealing military technology learning how to build these things. They're hacking. I mean, if you look at the list of companies hacked by China, right? You'll see Microsoft. You'll see you'll see a ton of them. So these, I mean, especially the way how if you want to do business in China, you have to have a Chinese like government 
person at the like in the one of the top positions there. So basically, they will have access to your your information, like your anything that does with production and stuff. Eventually, the iPhone companies that were in China, if you look at the phones, Huawei and all those brands, carbon copies of the iPhone down to the they're copying these things so they do a lot of that and and you know it's the so he spoke about the reason why they're not as creative as the american economy based on the way they run their system i don't think that they'll ever be as creative as innovative as the american economy I mean, whether you want to go to Microsoft and anything, we're at AI now. It's always America leading the way in all these things. So, yeah. Well, there's, you know, I just picked up, we went to this library book sale, um, and I picked up this book called The Geography of Genius that talks about places in the world that have historically had big pockets of innovation. Whoa, and that's cool. I, live, I know, I'm really excited. I'll let you know if it's like a sunken treasure. It was like $1. I was like, I'm going to buy this book. Um, and, but like, we, I lived in the North Bay, not in Silicon Valley, but there is like where you get innovation, you also like technical innovation. There's also like a huge libertarian vibe there. Like I'm going to, I'm not going to have a nonprofit because I'm not going to dick around with the government. I'm going to like make a for-profit school because I don't want to play around with the government games. And so I think, I think there's a slippery slope when you want innovative, like product innovation and you don't want like, I don't know. I don't have a good word for it, but um, um, yeah, or just um, like social structure when you you don't want to innovate social structures because they, it just happens sort of simultaneously when you have people that start thinking outside of the box. Um, So I I think that it's too dangerous. Yeah. Like uh, an interesting thing. uh, Now that we're talking about China and, uh, I don't know why I remember this. We, we were talking about why China... Yeah, yeah, yeah. We were talking about how China is exerting its strength in different ways and, you know, it's it's a response to what is being done and, you know, maybe it's because of this, maybe it's because of security and all that. What is so interesting about Chinese history is that the Chinese would rather be left alone. Like, the thing with China, uh, I, don't, I, I don't know because, because it's an Asian country. I don't know if you guys... Uh, ever read about this in school? I, probably not, but I don't know if you guys have come across this. Like when the British were buying a lot of tea and spices from Asia, China, and these places, right? Before they like properly conquered and could just loot us and all that. At that time, when they needed a lot of silver, they needed China to want something from them. And China is such a closed country throughout all of its history because China believes... China is the center of the world. Like there is like a word for that. I don't remember what it is. They literally are like China is at the center of the world. We have everything we need. We don't have to do anything. We don't have to trade with all these countries. It is ethnocentrism. Yeah. Yeah. I. It's not not even about the ethnicity. Just like we occupy such a central place in the world in terms of uh, innovation, because they they used to come up with a lot of great innovation like centuries ago. But I'm talking about centuries. Fireworks. Fireworks oh, them, paper, <laughs> papers them. Yeah, this is right after July 4th, fireworks. So papers them and there, there are a lot of stuff. And the interesting thing is, so because the British needed silver, what they started doing is they started introducing opium into China so that they could sell opium and get silver and use that silver to trade it for tea. 
so like china got into the whole uh who did war that? with the british and all of that sorry british british the british colonialists so they introduced opium into china so that they could get silver with which they used to buy tea and other spices so uh because they were losing out in this way because tea is a consumable and they were losing out on precious metal and they needed it back because china doesn't want anything from them china is like we are fine we don't want anything from you so which is like a very hardcore mercantilist position to have and they they were fine by themselves and then they were dragged into this war because of this kind of involvement by the british even now i feel like if the world was not this globalized and if countries didn't have their fingers into each other's treasures just in this way maybe the chinese would stay put like now we have such control that there is no way for them to grow by themselves because everything is a supply chain something is grown in argentina it has flown to like some asian country to pack and then it's sold in an american supermarket like it's like everything goes everywhere so the value chains are so interlinked that they need to be part of this and now they're playing the game i mean i'm not, i'm not trying to portray them as necessarily innocent but it's just interesting to see in history there were times when they just wanted to be left there alone but like yeah, they were but but those years when they wanted to be left alone they cut off their country yeah. from the world and they were starving i mean it was it, oh no no i'm not talking about today. no no i'm not talking about communist china i'm talking about 1700s this was before ancient china this was yeah, but you yeah said, communism wasn't so, a thing Imperial but you're saying China, that like, they would yes, want to be left you. alone right now if it weren't for external influences they would want to be left alone right that's that's the argument uh, yeah i i'm i'm not saying that is the argument but it it could be a possibility looking i just i just thought it's it's curious that because we discussed that they are being involved but china historically has been something that wants to be left alone till very recently right So yeah. I think what has changed is that they've seen the benefit of free trade. That is true. Since that opening up and they see how the wealth has changed their country, you know, the decline in poverty, them themselves as the 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 core of the country, the officials and stuff like that, they've gotten wealthier too. So I mean yeah. Yeah, they yeah, true. they they are they're the ones who are pushing the issue now to make themselves more involved in the world, to increase their power. So I don't think it's especially, something that we're doing to them they're doing it voluntarily. True. Especially and Lee Kuan Yew also talks about it. He talks about how uh, Xiao Temping uh changed and opened up uh China and like so so you're right you're right that is also true. Like Chinese ministers going abroad to study, you know, wealthy ministers sending their children and and also right. Lee Kuan Yew also was, you know, from Lee Kuan Yew also went to like very good schools. He first uh, enrolled London in LSE. School of Economics to start. Yeah. Yeah. initially but then he didn't like london then he went to cambridge graduated from cambridge and like very well educated so even chinese had you know their ministers and like their children go abroad come back see that lifestyle yeah yeah you're right you're right free trade also showed them that we can also have those things but daniel had a point no i just i think um i think it's really interesting i just want to make sure we have time to dive into america and Europe yeah we should too. be we should be smoothing um, we should we should uh, yeah i yeah i learned so much about you know sort of just where china is potentially and like also so much time has passed and so 
you know, things have changed significantly as well um, since the book was published. But the America piece for me was, you know, interesting and like also like spot on, like this idea of sort of like the internal turmoil being such like a key piece in, in where we are right now and, and our difficulty. Um, but also like I was standing in the 4th of July parade and, um, you know, has some, some family members there with us that are, are definitely more sort of super liberal. Um, and <laughs> I was trying to think of like, uh, but like, you know, weren't necessarily jazzed to, you know, be like, go America. Cause it's like 4th of July can be like a little bit of like America down your throat. Like, and it's like celebrating independence. But I did have this like idea after reading the the chapter on America of appreciate and just the book in general really helped me like, instead of focusing solely on where we need to get to, like also celebrating like what we have created that'll, that gives us the platform, the space to think about what we could be doing better. And, and so I did find myself sort of in a, a little more of uh, like just contemplating sort of where America is like right now. Um, and, and what a weird like unicorn of an animal it is. Yeah. Um, yeah right. Exactly. The American yeah. experiment. It's a great yes. experiment, you know, like, very successful um, one too. I mean, you can't. There's no denying that. I agree. I agree. We'll see. There are some issues, but like, any, <laughs> which country doesn't? Have issues, oh, cat! Right? The American is like, we'll see. <laughs> but that's what's happened. Is like oh. Americans are disenfranchised way more than the rest of the world, right. and so it was also like reading this book. I was like, oh yeah, like a lot of people aren't as angry about things in America. You know, things that America has done as Americans and. Um, yeah, just, I don't know. It was a and good And by the way, I just want to clarify. Uh, I Previously, when I was talking, just uh, just a clarification. It was Deng Xiaoping. I, I said it. I said the name wrong. I said Xiaoping. That liberated China mind. or kind of expanded China. Opened it up. Uh, yeah, opened it was it Deng up, yeah. Xiaoping. I think yeah. America is the best thing to have happened to the world like ever. Bold statement, but I accept it. That's what I think. <laughs> <laughs> I think that... Um, I think there's room for improvement. (laughs) Give it a B (laughs) minus. I think that before the emergence of America, the UK was the power in the world. The UK went around and they took from India, took from this, started their textile industry and they were, you know, the the workshop of the world. But um, the concept that people can govern themselves without a king, without a ruler, that experiment of democracy is the best thing to have happened to the world ever, ever. So, I mean, since since democracy, since the freedom of people, we've seen the rate of innovation in the world led by America due to people having the freedom to compete and make their way and, you know, whatever you earn, you can keep. And you attach such a great reward to innovation that you cause everyone to aspire to be that next rich person because it comes by serving others. You create something that other people want, serve the needs of others, and you can be rich. That system has lifted the world out of poverty 
has revolutionized everything, lifespans everything. It's the greatest thing to have ever happened to the world. That's that's my thing. But yes and no. Sure. Like, like, uh, same, same argument. like, I think, like, if I can attach that to the book, the book, I think, offers an interesting insight into, let, let's call them paradigms or realities, if you may. For sure, America has, or, you know, the capitalist system, the democratic system have opened up a very specific reality that I, you know, granted for sure, like wealth is being built. Uh, the quality of life for sure has been built. But the same has happened in China in a different way. Like if we compare them and if we want to call, you know, to put them in the in the same spectrum and analyze them with the same metrics, um, well, it, it is going to be, it's going to look different for each, right? Like, because I will also question what what are the preconceived beliefs uh, that led America to be like that? And I think that's pretty clear in the um, the Declaration of Independence, right? Like the belief of freedom and the pursuit of happiness and all these ideals that for China, for example, as uh, in the book is articulated, is very different. They are way more, and we have to acknowledge that they are a way more ancient ancient country, right? Like their culture has been around way before America existed. Uh, America meaning the United States. So they have a very different perspective of the world, a different way of approaching the world, of engaging with the world, which I think has led them to this idea of the center you write a strong center is a thing we need to pursue and eventually everything is going to unfold from the center. So I, I, I agree with you that for sure there are some interesting um, results from the experiment that the United States has been, but there are also very interesting results coming from China. And I think the book was really good at it. That expression so, of like, you know. So just to answer Alejandro, the only reason why China was successful is because they had a blueprint that they could copy from in terms of technological innovation, in terms of everything that was achieved by capitalism. They could copy and integrate that mechanization and the productivity and efficiency. That's what they brought into their country, which led to them being successful and as prosperous as they are today. Chinese, American companies moving into China is where their growth began. So, I, Sure, sure. But they are not following the same blueprint, right? Like for yeah, sure they took they something in terms of... They are following Singapore, for example. And exactly. Like, well, and they might be like taking it, capitalism, but not, they're right. not taking America's brand right. of it. So capitalism, there's, yes. There's also why, something yeah, that... Ahead, there's also something that's happened generationally in America um, because of this attainment of a particular, and I'm going to speak like, not, not exclusively, because there are definitely reasons of poverty and, and that still exists. Um, but the drive to innovate, I will say, like I first, I first had this epiphany when I did research um, and I looked at the like, and this was in 2009, 
2009. Yeah, I was I was doing neuroscience research in a medical school, and I looked at the directory of primary researchers, and like the number of like white last names was so small, <laughs> and there was like <laughs> Asian last names, <laughs> Indian last nice. names, like la- even like what? Latin American what? last names what? for medical for, like, research for research, and and I think that. And, and it's also part of the, like, everybody goes, everybody should go to college and now we're going to forgive all your student loans, which is a whole different, like, <laughs> shenanigan that I think is, is like, a problem with personal responsibility. But I don't think American, young Americans are reaching because things are quite easy. And I think the reason we're recruiting the best and the brightest from other nations is because they, they still are, at, there's a gap between where they want to be and where they are. And so that creates a drive to innovate. And I think that we have lost, like America still has the playground, like geographically and structurally has the playground for that to happen. But the number of actual like European descendant, you know, like what you think of when you think of like American that are paving that way is, is fewer and fewer um, because, because we just like, like, why would I get off my mom's couch and like, <laughs> think about how I could make things better <laughs> when like, I got my iPhone when I was 11 and, you know, and, and yes, I know there's like a whole different demographic of America, but I also think like that, that things are just easy enough with, I don't know. I'm curious to hear because that's, def- I, I, but I noticed that in research and I was like, whoa, like what's happening um, and it was, it's great to have an international component. It's important for diversity of thought, but it's more than that. It's that I don't think, I don't think there's creativity in the same way um, as there once was. I think own, the like, interesting perception. thing is he talks about, he makes a point about how there will come a point when the Latino community will start having more influence on culture than the Anglo-Saxons. So oh, yeah. There was already more it Spanish. Is, no, we had Spanish music at our 4th of July like right, situation. Right? So like so the I was this this is I I will I will like allude to your point and also the the greater point I was trying to make is that the American experiment works as the perfect control experiment because really hungry very aggressively freedom seeking different Mm. bunches of people said you know what we're gonna do our own thing we're gonna leave our countries in europe and then they come to america wipe the slate clean and they start over there are people living there first you know i mean just a different get topic. rid of them and like <laughs> yeah, get that, rid of, yeah we can go there <laughs> yeah like we'll go there on a different a different yeah day. yeah that's a different day but basically wipe the slate clean no these people no 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 we are not like trying to learn integrate no wipe the slate clean set it brand new and even set down an ideology and me as an asian if i actually think about it and think about how amazing it is that a group of people can sit down and decide you know what we are going to do we're going to value liberty you know what we are going to do we're going to value the idea that you individualism and all of this you could never do that in an asian country because these are handed down to you you debate them but you don't get a clean chip 
uh, sorry, clean slate is like no, no. You don't get a clean slate to start on. So it's a very interesting uh, thing that, and also America on both sides has oceans, and like it is so expansive. And I mean, it is it's great. Huge. I'm just saying all the benefits. It's huge. It's huge. Yeah. It has many resources and all of that. So it has always been a culture of okay, keep coming, keep coming, keep coming. these are our values and american values are values that you can take up like when you talk about liberty and this and this because it's not like it's not like the japanese thing where you're like you can live there you can talk like them understand the mannerisms and still like for example uh, whenever they talk about like masayoshi son the founder of softbank he comes from a family of like koreans that settled in in japan they sometimes change their surname to sound more japanese just so like uh in like applications around maybe they can get a, uh, a they can get ahead and all. yeah sound japanese basically so uh they they they're koreans and it's not that kind of a thing if you're an entrepreneur there are these are things you can take so it has been easy for uh, america to accept them and like it has been building into this but this point likwanyu mentions about now there is this but it has never been that one particular community was so big and so influential that either uh culturally there was like a huge challenge across the nation or religiously there was a huge challenge across the nation there was a lot of luck in that most of the people that were coming were predominantly christian and but the even even putting aside religion this thing he talks about about like what happens when anglo-saxons are not the majority and like who influences who that will be interesting to see i think i think i mean my bet is still on america coming out of it in shining colors it will just be interesting to see in the short term how they struggle with that and how they and and i think i just want to like offer my two cents i think we are struggling right like we're going through a really tumultuous time and so i i really want to not tread lightly but actually just like make it i want to push back on any notion of you know the united states pulled themselves up by their bootstraps right is like a phrase you'll hear when someone who's you know had it easier looking down on someone who has it much harder like well just pull yourself up by your bootstraps like it's not that hard like i i want to push back on that notion because i mean kind of what y'all have already touched on like to start with a clean slate is already an advantage right you're not starting with with the hereditary you know cultural Value physical yeah. environment right like that you've inherited it um but but also like i mean yeah sure we can talk about even the industrial revolution like much like how england kind of pieced together like piecemealed the best of all the places it con- uh colonized yes colonized it pieced together it took treasures literal treasures from other places in like keeps it in the you know the british museum and stuff like but that goes for technology too and even like other things but the americans benefited from that too they they were able to take that knowledge and start this new country but alongside of that i mean we have to i mean there's so much economic power was built and sustained on the backs of humans that did not have freedom that did not have rights and so here we are kind of like oh we're the land of the free like no, for so long we so many people weren't right But, and then to further that point like 
I mean, not just slavery, but then in the the aftermath of World War II, who did the United States recruit as like some of their top researchers, but Nazi doctors? I mean, like to advance medical discovery and innovations. I mean, like I, I want to make it clear, like United States had a lot of, I want to call them like lucky wins, I would say, by kind of poaching and utilizing some of the resources that I guess other people wouldn't be willing to utilize. But um, is that it, it made an advantage? Sure. No doubt about it. Here we are today. Like the standard of living is pretty great, but people are, you know, we still can't ensure healthcare for everyone. We can't ensure, you know, food for every child. We still can't ensure, you know, our, our maternal mortality rate is rising year after year. Like we're here. We are right. supposed oh, yeah. to be That's like this what? leading country. Yes. That we, has to do. The there's a, there's a whole science, like, really so awful much. insurance-based reason for that, but I won't go into that. Yeah, I mean, um, we if it was, so here I am, like, and the idea of democracy, I, I too struggle with, because here we are with nine, you know, Supreme Court justices who are an appointed representative. They are not elected, and they are elected for life, and their decisions make lasting impacts. That is not democracy, that, I mean, it, it's a version of democracy because obviously that's the judicial branch and then we've got the executive branch and the legislative branch, right? Like I know the government, it's a form of democracy, but I, I don't want to parade around saying like the United States has it figured out and that, you know, our brand of democracy should be exported to around the world because it shouldn't. Agreed. It's just one version. Um, and which it's country not gonna, would it's, you say, which country you say has a better brand of democracy than America? Well, shoot, Singapore seems to be doing a pretty great job. Like, oh, no, no, trust me. We don't want to. No, 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 no. We'll, we'll do that next episode. We don't want to go there now. It's interesting. It we'll, we'll talk about it. Is is Singapore a democracy? Forget? It is. It is. It is. It is a democracy. Since and when? It's it is known a democracy. for like. Since when? I mean, since, isn't that one of LKY's big thing? It's like highly effective and anti corrupt, you know, mm-hmm. government in civic service. Okay, why? Lee Kuan Yew. Lee Kuan Yew. But I think like what's different... So one thing, which country outside of Singapore then would you say have a better brand of democracy than America? Because they're the inventors of democracy. It it was never done before then. So is there anybody you feel... Wait, who are the inventors of democracy? America. What? (laughs) No, they're not. Of a democratically run country? Yes. A democratic republic. But there have been other... Forms. It's almost an oxymoron, yeah, having a democracy and a republic. Well, it's all oxymorons, right? To have a communist dictatorship is right. like a complete oxymoron. I mean, I think there's always... Touche. That's a good one. Um, to and, and also, like, the, the great... Like, China, I mean, you want to talk about, like, slave casualties, <laughs> like, serious... You know, I, I, I don't think that it's good, um, but no, I do... Is, sorry. Yeah. No, America I, might have I, I think, refined modern democracy, but democracy has existed in Greece, in Britain, in different forms. Like right. in yeah. Greece, there was democracy, the whole but country like, is run on democracy. Yeah, yeah. Where the state, but you're talking about the idea. Practically, what is today's version but, of a country, but it's much smaller. But not everyone got a vote. Right. Only the one like man, one certain, vote thing was very yeah. uniquely. But American. if you were to go down that road. Women not having the right to vote and also was also like a thing for a while. 
in American democracy, sure. right? And so, then you've got this American didn't... property has been a thing. That's yeah. exactly. I don't, I don't want so to put that not... in America. Yeah, yeah. To, like, America get past didn't that. invent that a bigger... democracy. That's not <laughs> yeah. historically accurate. Okay. But I think what's what's so, really yeah. interesting is I don't think there's yeah, anybody with you, doing it like, so 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 the people who are at the top, the best right now are still unsatisfied with what they've achieved, which is a good thing, but with that well, being said, I mean it's it's really not a contest in the world in terms of if you look at any other country and look at them doing well, providing health care and all the other stuff, that's because they have no immigrants there. all of those societies oh, that that's you're going not to true look well, at Britain is pretty much. Uh, Canada doesn't, um, Canada okay, has a lot of immigrants. What percentage of Canada is immigrants? I don't have that. I mean, they invite the immigrants. Know that, Donovan. They are, they, they are do, but people don't actually like living there. Um, and they also have some really awful like tribal policies. Canada is one of a really interesting one that I think, um, but I also like, I have an aunt who lives in the UK and you know, they're, they're super proud of their healthcare system, but I think she pays she pays over fifty percent in taxes um, because so she's at the top tier. Um, quick Google search: Canada has, accounts for twenty three percent of its population as immigrants, so nearly oh, a quarter. Oh wow! So that's rising. That that's that's that that's, that's maybe in the last ten years they have been bringing in immigrants, right? But in terms of where foreigners can feel comfortable. And have a community and stuff like that. I don't think anyone does it still as well as the Americans do it. So, you know. Well, this is very interesting because it goes against my gut feeling. Like, the but like, Kat, so I'll gut, tell you, like, I'm with you. Like, I go back and forth between like America's like a dumpster fire. We're um, so but I harsh think, on immigrants. I, and one right? more thing like, too. We're abusive. We hold them but, in cages. But so I don't want to say this in like a, an awful way. I think what happened, so does everybody else. Um, and I think that what's happened as a like disenfranchised American is that, that we got to this place where, you know, we're fed this utopian sort of, this is what America can be. It's not. And then we like want to throw the whole thing, the baby out with the bathwater, like this whole, like, <sighs> like the whole thing has to suck because it's not working the way it should. Right. And I think as we begin to peel back layers on what we could have done differently, we could have done it differently, of course. I maintain like, there's room for improvement. You want to I'm talk about like throw out the, baby with the, the Netherlands, water. which everybody thinks is this like utopian society and how they bankrupt, you know, the uh, Ghana or you know, the, where they, you know, went and like harvested diamonds and like created like the whole diamond trade and then like left. And that happened a long time ago. And there's not a lot of evidence for that. But I, th I think that, as an American internally right now, there is a, a narrative to be really critical on what we've accomplished. Um, and, and I don't know what the answer is. It's a mess. Like for sure, there are lots of things that are a mess, but I, I haven't visited enough other countries to know whether or not our mess is like uniquely awful, or if right. this is just sort of what happens as you try to create um, a better system. So one, one thing I'd add to, the immigrants that account for the 20% in Canada have all been curated and selected. If you're an immigrant that want to get to Canada, you have to have a degree. You have to have a certain amount of cash. You have to have a whole host of things, right? In terms of immigrants that can... So, so 
I mean, those immigrants are still not. It's still different from America. But then. doesn't every country we're go through more some vetting process? Workforce. I mean, well, America doesn't. What, what kind well, of vetting process does America it, have? Oh yeah, they do. Are you? Uh, America yeah. has Donovan. They don't Absolutely. just have okay. I mean, you go through everyone. a thorough, thorough okay. process. So I, I'm not it's sure way what harder percentage than, than Canada. Like I'm Canada, not sure. like Canada is mm-hmm. easy to go as an immigrant. Like for sure, there is some curated immigration, but also right now Canada has programs for people to work in construction and people to work in, and they give you everything. Like if you go and you want to work in Canada, of course, in provinces, it's not like you go to Toronto, right? Like you go to parts of Canada that people just don't want to do labor. Don't want want to go to agriculture. Yeah, they just don't want to do the hard labor and they know, Uh, you know, so they invite immigrants and they give them residencies. They give them ways of making their, right? Like a living in there in the first years. Like Canada is great for immigration right now because they need it. <laughs> so but they treat you way better than the US at least. What percentage of American immigrants went there legally as opposed to how many of them went there illegally? Because uh, I'd I mean, say that's probably into a whole 50, other 50. ball game. Yeah, but I'm just saying that yeah, in this... terms of immigration, America's group of immigrants is still different from the group of immigrants that Canada and these other countries have. So in terms of the ability to assimilate immigrants, America is still far in the lead, in my opinion. Assimilation, yes, America is better. But to bring, but to bring the point back to, uh, the focus back to Kat's original point of, is, is it an effective democracy? I, I, I think it is. And I, I understand the problem with the judiciary and I understand, you know, it can also be, uh, informed by like the recent uh, very divisive right uh, the Supreme Court judgments that can came have... out, but but it should also be remembered that judiciary is that powerful because they can't be removed, so that they can make decisions. It is not a one way street, right? Because when uh, if the same Supreme Court say protected Roe v Wade, if we celebrated them, and when they you know, cancel it if we diss them without looking at the judicial process and the integrity of a judiciary as a whole, then we would be in trouble because even in a place that is as messed up as India, with its democracy fraught with corruption and like, you know, casteist politics and all of that, judiciary is like the one thing that we still trust in, sort of. Like, when we really when we really get agitated, is we'll talk more about it in the next episode when we discuss India, when we really get agitated is when we feel like uh, even the even the judges are like completely being messed with and stuff like that. So the idea of the judges staying has some value because it's not like they're going to be changed three years later. It's not going to be, it's not like, you know, Trump or Biden can fire them. So I, I understand the packing of the Supreme Court, like, uh, you know, you, what what is the word for that? There is some word for that where you like add uh, extra judges who I understand there are problems, Expand but the court. There, there is a, there is a word the for court. It. I think a, you said it right. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's packing the court. Yeah. So I know there is the argument about how you can add extra justices who are either uh, uh, leaning, who are leaning one side, but like there's still value to have having a legal system that holds to account. And America has been using its advantages well. 
by far. So, I, I, and, and especially, and I also must, uh, I also must acknowledge like this, this uh, American attitude of saying that we still can do a lot more is why America keeps being the beacon <laughs> of hope for many people because oh, Americans yeah. hold America to such a high standard, I, which I is, which I, say, which I, I commend. I think that 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 feeling of oh we're not as good as we think and we're this and that kind of self beating that they give to eat themselves is due to the internal strife where there are some groups of people who benefit from white guilt that benefit from making people feel as if they're still guilty for these things so that they can get resources and reparations and all these things and demonize i think that they're I believe that there's a lot of people who would like Americans to believe that they are not a force for good in the world and are against the patriotism. And I think that that's the whole white guilt movement because they can benefit from it in some way. But I don't think people do. I mean, living in there and going to university there, especially in California, um, right? Like these are all liberal people, woke people, whatever california um, right yeah southern yeah california, california yeah la <laughs> like going to la and studying there and yeah. you know the academic uh environment of people just talking about all these theories and woke and critiques and whatever i don't think people are like machiavellically thinking i benefit from this systematically So this is a good way of pursuing it. I think it's a problem of the history and the whole aspect of how, you know, the whole continuum struggle of the melting pot, right? Like how do we coexist together and how do we, the whole question of identity is a huge problem in America because people are like this lack of identity, right? Like, compared to what we see in the book that he talks about Singapore uniting by a language. Um, in the United States, there's no such a thing as the identity of being American. Like it is still, Americans themselves are trying to understand what it is. Like my friends who are yeah. the kids, uh, you know, like sons or daughters from immigrants, like Mexican and immigrants, for a lot like of Americans, it's like we don't relate the national that identity comes second to the state identity, or vice versa, right? Like, right? It really right, is, right. Uh, speaking as a Texan, right? Like, I know plenty of people who are yeah. like, "Fuck yeah, Texas first, and yeah. then American uh -huh. favorite, figure out the rest later." Like, right? Um, and like slavery and so that is identities. Whole, slavery is a whole part of history that I can see. The problem with it is the pain that people still have, you know, and I mean, I'm, I'm in no position to say that it is valid or not to have their pain. Uh, can we treat it differently? For sure, because the problem is still there. So for sure, there's so, something better that we can be done. But I don't think that people is like, oh, yeah, you know, let's white shame people because we benefit from this. I, I don't think it comes from that. It could be a consequence for sure, but I don't think people actively... We have to acknowledge the system that. is rigged. Yeah. Right. So, 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 mm. so just to, to touch on a few things. <laughs> so a few things. 
Um, I think you can check America's net worth. I think the value of the American economy before the world wars started, as in after slavery, after the gain, um, after the revolution in 1776, I believe. Check what was the value. How, what was America's economy like? Where were they ranked in the world? They were pretty far down the list, right? As far as I can remember. I'm not sure we can check it. But they were pretty insignificant compared to the French and the Spaniards and the British and all of them. After the wars and them fueling both sides of the wars with their um, manufacturing sector, that's the point where America overtook the world because that's where they could gain a lot of wealth from the British. They actually sold weapons and arms to the USSR too and to a lot of those different sides. Every side was financed by the Americans. That's where the wealth of America boomed significantly. That's the also America in context gained to the age of wealth. the country, though. What's that? That's in context of the age of the country. I mean, you can't expect like a newborn country to be super economic power. So it's, uh, I, I hear what you're saying. But, yeah. but the notion that America's wealth came from slavery. After it, slavery. A strong after, basis was. Good. Well, you have to show yeah. me the wealth. You have to show me what the net value of the American economy was. After 1776, out of slavery, is that what made America rich? The slavery? How much did they make from slavery, actually? Because as oh, far as I can see, based on the numbers, it was after the World Wars. After Europe was demolished, the UK was bombed. But I mean, you can make that argument. The United States was only in a position to take advantage of the Red Industrial Revolution because of slavery, because they were able to benefit so much that they could get people educated. Well, they I'll could get that. people into positions of leadership to no. execute during <laughs> the Industrial Revolution. I mean, so it, really, a, it's all in context of each other. So, we might um, need to continue this discussion yeah. in the next episode. So. <laughs> Yeah, but so, so okay. far, so, so I'll get I'll get to that in the next episode. But one more thing I'd like to say: U.S. is still an economic powerhouse. That's I mean it is absolutely. Just the final thing is that about the judges not being a part of the democratic process. The reason why judges are necessary is because America is not run by a ruler. America is run by a constitution, and there has to be someone who interprets that constitution to determine what laws are in accordance with the constitution. The judges are appointed by a member, by the president, who is elected by the people. And so the judge can't be looked at as separate from the person who was elected to choose a judge. So because it's run by a constitution, that's why the judges are essential for the functioning of a democratic republic. Yeah. A version of democracy. Any country, that's run democracy. Any, any, country, any country that's going to be run based on rules and laws... Those rules and laws has to be interpreted based on the, the generations to come. And so sure, they have sure. to have a body dedicated to interpreting those laws. And if you don't have that, you'd have to show me that democracy that's run based on rules and laws that don't have... Well, that hasn't been invented. Dedicated so... to in yeah, apparently it hasn't. And that's what I'm saying. You Why can't judge a system. people interpreting it? You can't... Because people are uneducated. The people, the key people aren't fit to Why interpret are they the constitution. Because not everybody wants to be a legal scholar. No, that's very true. Not exactly. everyone has access to it either. All right, all right. Closing arguments. Yeah. Kat, do you want to say anything at the end? Uh, for the book, it really, it drove home some principles about international relations that I hadn't been familiarized in a very long time. Um, and man, I, 
my background is largely based in Latin America. So it was, it was really refreshing to gain this perspective on, you know, the Eastern hemisphere and just China and Singapore and, and really seeing like different success stories, right? I'm familiar with the United States success story, but like really looking at Singapore as a success story is, has been really eye opening. So yeah, great recommendation. For me, like, just to wrap up on like the America China thing, because I have often sort of been in a similar place, I think, as Kat, as far as like looking at the American experiment as like largely a failure. Um, uh-huh. It was I really think interesting. Putting words in my mouth, I don't think it's okay, largely sorry. a failure. I'm sorry. I think it, I gave it a B minus. Like I think there's a lot of good <laughs> stuff. <laughs> totally uh, fair. Thank you for the correction. Fair enough. Fair um, enough. But like. But like not seeing it as like this, like I want to wave the flag all the time and scream that I'm a part of this because there are parts that I wish were different. I'll restate Guys, that. guys, she um, gave a B minus. And <laughs> as an Asian, I'm saying this, it's fine. Take your B minus for once and walk. <laughs> um, but I think... And then we wait, cut. Just, and I next episode. <laughs> that yeah, I, yeah. I appreciated the book for like I always assume that America being in Asia is like this like we don't like this nosy sort of like out of our realm and so the book I think for me it was really interesting to see someone else's perspective on maybe why it's beneficial or just some balance I think to to the story that I was telling about it and so for me I think the the China America thing um, especially was really interesting just to check like the single perspective that I have on, on how I view America. Cats B minus for America is if you have heaven on the list, if heaven is at A, <laughs> well then it's fair to put America as a B minus. But, but if, if you're comparing, if you're comparing America to other countries, to other countries, if America isn't an A, nowhere else is. I think no we can do better as the world, Donovan. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> right. So, okay. Uh. Avast, mateys. This is the end of our show today, but don't go just yet. Be a real treasure hunter and share this episode with a friend. Like what we're doing? Tell us what you think by leaving a comment and following us on your preferred platform. To continue the conversation, tweet us at The Sunken Tea. And don't forget, you can join in on the adventure by sending us your own sunken treasure by using the link in the description. Thanks for listening. Until we meet again in our next episode of The Sunken Treasures. <laughs>